What is the church doing? Busting down the damn gates of hell. What's hell? Hell is darkness. Hell is guilt. Hell is shame. Hell is hate. The church, what's the church doing? What's the church doing? Whatever she's doing, the gates of hell ain't going to stand up against her. No. And Jesus continues by the Spirit to do this thing called church in spite of Christianity. The Church, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. In the Shadow of the Cross, I am Lauren Rosser, and I'm here with my friends Jim Durkin. Hello. And Michael Harden. Greetings. And uh, today, before we jump into the topic, I had to share something with you my daughter shared with me. Uh, What do you call a group of white men? (laughs) (laughs) Our schools? (laughs) A podcast. A podcast. So we're just doing what white men do. Whenever you get a group of white men together, you got to have a podcast. So so I I thought that was quite fitting. Oh, we are uh, so relevant. It's wonderful to be relevant. Yes, exactly. So um, today we are talking about the church. Um, I thought it was fitting following the discussion on the cross because as I was thinking about you know, the typical belief, if you were to just boil it down to basic tradition, is that if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you need to show up at a building on 10 a.m. or whatever on Sunday morning um, to sing some songs and listen to a sermon or your spiritual life is suspect. And what I'm pondering is how do you go from, imagine now, erase everything we know or think we know and go back to what we talked about about the cross. Jesus just rose from the dead. You have the gospel, um, the disciples instructed to go into all the world and make disciples. And it kind of seems like it's a massive mental leap to go from point A, that, to point B of what what I just talked about being the standard of, of the expectation in Christianity. And so it's kind of like, to me, it's like one plus one equals taco. I mean, it, it's so far off the radar that it's like, how do you get there? So, so talking about the church, I want to begin by saying we're not talking methodology here, um, because for me, one of the things is is that um, so many people think that the issue is we got to get the formula right. And if we get the formula right, then everything's going to be better. So you have like the house church people, you know, oh, the problem is meeting in a building or being institutional. So if we take it out of the building, um, it's going to be great. And and then you end up just taking all the same problems with you because, you know, the issues are in us. They're not out there somewhere. Um, and so what I'm finding is, is the ditch that we tend to fall in is it's about tweaking the formula or it's about on the other side of the road. It's um, it's kind of this, we don't need church at all, church is evil, church is bad, and I've seen that going around a lot too on Facebook discussions like that. So what is the whole point of the church? What is church about? Let's just start right there. 
Okay, so I have to tell you, I was uh, when you had sent that question earlier, I, I immediately just was cogitating on that. And it seems to me that the first thing we have to do is recognize when we are talking about this topic of the church, we have to distinguish between three different things. Number one, our own experience with various congregations. Yeah. yeah. Number two, what the church has to say about herself, that Catholic with a small c, okay? Okay. Or even with a large c, if you want, but, but that what does the church say about herself historically? And then number three, <clears throat> post-enlightenment, when we do history, the history that we do of the church at times coincides with the way the church sees herself, but often is a different perspective. And we have to identify which of those three perspectives we're dealing with when we say the church. That's really good. Yeah, that that's really good. That that's a good way to bring it down because you're right. It's such a it's such a massive topic that and 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 it's important that we define exactly what we're talking about. So, so even on the starting point, I just want to throw out to you guys, where do you want to start with this? Well, if you, if you, like you said, we, so we did deconstruction. We're talking about the cross because we're, what we're doing is we're really, the audience doesn't know this yet, but we're creating a model and epistemology for them. Okay. And so here we are, we're talking about the church. So most people are going to immediately go to their experience with congregations. That's where, I tend to go, okay? Right. Now, folks listening to our podcast are going to tend to be those who've had experiences with congregations that included a lot of pain. Right. So church, the word church connotes for them pain. Whereas when you look at how the church perceives herself in a kind of an idealistic sense, the, the pain is removed. It's a beautiful picture of what the church as an ideal can be, could be, okay? And then, of course, there's that that historical recognition that the church has, has had her beautiful moments. Lord have mercy, you, I, as, a, as a lover of church history, there's not a century somewhere, I can, I can point to you in any century where the church is having a beautiful moment somewhere. Even oh, wow. in the so-called dark age of, of 600, 700, 800, 900. She's always having her beautiful moments, along with all of these ugly, uh, colonialistic, platonic, dualistic, all that other stuff is there, right? Right? It's there. Yeah. And so for most people, as I would think that, that we are reaching out to, is we're beginning to recognize that the church, well... She is indeed the cradle of the gospel, as Luther put it, is also the whore of Babylon. Hmm. And so we're faced with this reckoning of what it means to be church. Are we those that simply cradle this good news message that leaks out by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit, thank Jesus, right? Or are, are, you know, how, how do we do this thing? How do we do this? So anyway, those are my initial thoughts. I apologize for dominating here for a moment, Jim. My bad. But No, uh, I think it's, it's good, and I'm glad you did. Um, in, in thinking about this, I, I 
started to kind of untangle those three things that Michael's talking about. And if we take the word away, church, let's let's just set that on a shelf for a, for a few minutes. What we've talked about about deconstruction, what we talked about over the last couple of weeks about the cross, there is a composition in Christ where he draws mankind to himself, where we are reconciled to God. And that God nature within each of us, that reconciliation in Christ, brings a hunger, if you will, if that's the right word, to be together with other people. People of like mind, people of... Now, where we make our mistake is... We even take the statement I made, people of like mind, and we reinterpret that as people of like doctrine. <laughs> and that's where our breakdown begins, right there. That's good. If, if rather we would allow ourselves the liberty to let the Lord make the connections. Now, I happen to be pretty... Uh, social, I enjoy social interaction, I enjoy hanging out with people, and so sometimes on Sunday morning I get up and I my social quotient hasn't been filled for the week. So I'm like, okay, let's go to a building, let's be with some people, and we can drink some coffee before the, the formal meeting and whatever, and then we go through the meeting, and then afterwards we'll have some cookies or donuts or pie and coffee, and and we'll have a good time. And I'll watch out, diabetics. I'll, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, the doctor hasn't confirmed that I'm diabetic yet, so I'm still... <laughs> but uh, but if, I, if I try and narrow this, this much larger picture of relationship that's in Christ, the connections that he makes, and I try and limit that to uh, an hour or two, 15 minutes of visiting before the service and another 15, 20 after, uh, and then looking at the back of the same person's head for 40 years, uh, even if I don't personally get beat up by the institution, it's going to leave me very hungry because uh, relationship is so much bigger than that. I want to take us from the present into the future by acknowledging that what we are right now here on this podcast in the name of Jesus is the Ecclesia. Yes. Wherever yeah. two or more are gathered in his name, he says, I am present. And he is present right here. Right here. Now, this virtual we, we when people this is just for later in the discussion but it hit me big time we are the church right here right now because we are yeah, gathered yeah. in the name of jesus and nazareth son of the father right giver of the spirit of life and that makes this church if we were going to really get proper about it why we do eucharist together but i'm i'm just not sure about how how to do Eucharist virtually. I haven't thought that through. It doesn't work in my head. But the fact is, right now, we are gathered together. And the listeners that gather with us 
are gathered together in the name of Jesus. They are experiencing, quote, ecclesia, assembly, right? right? Yeah. So, Jim, spot on, babe. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I really see that happening where, Jim, you touched on the thing where you mentioned uh, Steve Crosby uses the word, the, the phrase, the divine lines of attraction, and he talks about how, um, you know, for example, you have a, a guy and a girl go to the country dance and, you know, they're, uh, they may dance with different people, but there's that, they meet each other and there's that attraction that they want to be together. And, and um, I've seen and that. That, that over- happens when you're young. When you're old, it don't happen. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> when you're divorced and you're old, it doesn't happen. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but for the sake of the uh, analogy, um, but I, I do find and have found that Michael, just as you were talking about in the virtual world, and, and as well as just in in relational connections and daily life, that there are people that you run across that you just feel like I want to be in their life or I want them in my life, and I've learned to pay much more attention to that than I used to, and so what I've been seeing happen is much more of this intricate web of relational connections um, that are going all over the world. I mean, I, I have friends in Canada, in England, and uh, and all across the United States who who I actually consider myself pretty close to. Like you guys, we're all in we're in three different time zones here, um, and and we're all connected here having this conversation. So I have to tell you, there is a woman named Carol Wimmer. She lives in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Carol is like me. She's an independent scholar. And she is a scholar. Um, And uh, she had a a bit of an experience with the spirit about 20 years ago. And has ended up writing three books that are some of the most intriguing approaches to issues relating to things we're talking about today. So she's talked about time in her first book, which is very, very challenging. Uh, It's called The Clock. But in her second book, she talks about what was given to her as the future vision of the church. And that book is called The Net. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And then the third is The Key. Um, in fact, Carol's going to do a little class online in January. You just hit me up in the DMs. I'll set you up with her. Very, very intelligent woman. A lot, she reminds me a lot of uh, Margaret Barker, if you know who Margaret Barker is, in terms of her way of reading the, the Jewish scriptures. Um, yeah, almost almost a very Jewish reading, in fact. Wow. It's, it's very interesting. So, Lauren, I just I just was thinking... Up till now, we've been talking about getting together in a building, right? Yeah. Um, we're, 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 that that whole paradigm has to shift now going into the future, right? Now, what did COVID teach us? COVID taught us we could do church online. Mm-hmm. We can do virtual church. Okay? Here's, here's the whole issue I have at this point. There are going to be those that are going to monetize this Ooh. virtual church. Oh yeah, you want to come to my virtual church? You know, boom, boom, boom. And we have to stand against those. And I, and if they come out, I'm going to start naming them. 
I will stand against that. Yeah. Monetization of the gospel. Yeah. I, but, I thought what COVID taught us was that uh, you can have the elements of, of um, the Eucharist in a little prepackaged thing that you lift up the little tab and you got the wafer and... <laughs> It's, it's, it's like a former. It's like a former uh, executive officer of a country once said, "I go to church. I have my little bread. I have my little wine." <laughs> you know, the first time I was in Florida, oh, oh my gosh, it was the church was wonderful. The pastor I love with my whole heart. He's not there anymore, but they did communion. I was there that Sunday, and we went up and we had those little individual things you had to open up. Oh, I chastised that congregation for that. I said, how absolutely narcissistic. Well, you're, you're taking on uh, the whole elephant, and I think we probably ought to try one bite at a time here. <laughs> yes. Which part of the elephant would you like, sir? Yeah, exactly. But I do want to get back to uh, the subject of, of relationship. Mm -hmm. And relationship, to me, is, is not pick and choose. You know, I, I I like what these guys are teaching, or I like how these guys worship over here. Uh, I do agree with you, Lauren. There are times, and and you know, who can who can explain it? You know that that you see somebody across the room, so to speak, even even if it's across the the Facebook room, you know, right. and you're just like, something in your heart says, hey, there's a connection there. And, and you know it's deeper than, I like the way this person writes, or I like the way they rebutted that person, or whatever. It's like just, there's some kind of a connection there. And, um... Again, who who can explain that? But in a local area, when you when you have those kinds of things, those go so much deeper than a building, or a format, or a doctrinal agreements, or because they're the relationships that are forged in Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, He puts the members in the body where it pleases Him, mm -hmm. and I, I think if we're going to address the subject of church. That has to be possibly even the foundation of our conversation, is what are those relationships or how are those relationships fortified that, that Christ makes? How do we get past reducing it down to, well, let's figure out what our doctrine is or what you started out with, Lauren, um, are we going to do house church or are we going to do, you know, a public square you know in the park on saturday afternoon are we going to get a building you know are we going to be biblically correct which i i think is uh you know is ridiculous to try and figure that out uh you know what's what's the most biblically correct way to meet uh i don't i i don't think those first century disciples were trying to figure out how to be biblically correct <laughs> Right. No. No. <laughs> well, and it makes sense also that, um, you know, the father is relational. And that's one of the things we talked a lot about on the uh, on the last couple of weeks. And so it makes sense that what Jesus showed caring for people that as followers of him, it 
only is natural that we should be the most relational people around. Um, sadly, that, that of course, you know, we have our own issues and things that we have to get over. But in a perfect world, as Michael mentioned earlier, um, in, in the purest form, that's what we would be. Is uh, is relational with with one another, connecting with one another as he leads, and and I've seen that that um, I just have to say here, um, this is one of the reasons I'm glad you guys are here. Is you know Jim is um, it was uh, in the church that you pastored where I encountered that for the first time in my life. You know we would hear all the time churches, family, churches, family, churches, family, blah blah blah. You know growing up, and that's kind of just thrown around, but that was the first time I ever actually encountered fellowship as truly being family. And like you said, it it wasn't just the Sunday morning thing. It wasn't that the Sunday morning service was so amazing and so great. It was that during the week, we had such a hunger to get together that we were get, getting together like, hey, I'm going to watch a movie. How many people want to come over? You know, um, hey, I made a big pot of soup. I have a bunch left over. Who wants to come over? And we were just going from house to house and nobody said, this is what you have to do. This is what you're supposed to do. It was so natural. And then when we would get together, you'd be talking about what God's doing in your life and things that are happening in life. And you just end up praying for one another. And it was so real. Um, that it it ruined me in the best way possible because then God led Lily and I to move from Eureka to Sacramento and it was stepping into the desert, man, because all of a sudden we're going from congregation to congregation trying to find that kind of relationship and it was just dead program after program and it's a very political city so it was just you know just dead services trying to look good externally and they would use all the lingo family you know relationship and and it just wasn't there we finally found some people um where it was there and it's interesting just like with jesus it was on the poor side bad quote-unquote bad side of town where we found it <laughs> it wasn't among the rich and uppity up community that where we found that um yeah. but but that sparked in me i think what we're talking about here where those connections where it just leave it left me with a hunger for the authentic because once you've tasted the real and that's the sad thing is so many christians and my heart breaks for them so many haven't tasted the real and that was one of my lessons when i would get all judgmental oh, all these christians not being relational just you know using the lingo of family but then i had to realize they were like me when i was growing up they never tasted that so they didn't even know what that looked like or how to move in that. And I realized that was part of my function was I had to show them instead of judging them, I had to be relational. <laughs> and so they could learn how to be relational. If, if I can get you early on in your human life, let's say, and isolate you and tell you that um, blue is green, and pink is orange, and so on and so forth. Later in life, you'll be claiming something that's that's clearly blue. You'll be saying, man, that's the be most beautiful green thing I've ever seen in my life. Okay, take that now that to what you're just talking about right now. So many people, shortly after their uh, initial introduction to a life in Christ, get into a church. Many churches use those terminologies of relationship, especially the one family, you know, mm. my church family. Right. And so 
if if from the very beginning of your coming into a, a, a belief in Christ, a belief in what he did, you get into a group that tells you this right here, this little circle right here, is your family. This is what family looks like. Then to whatever degree that they experience, you know, the twice a year potlucks and, you know, the one time in the park, you know, that they do something and whatever, you grow up thinking, okay, that's what family looks like. And so much later, you're saying you're you're trying to say, oh no, I have a family, I have a church family. But deeper, a deeper place in your heart is crying out, saying, "There's got to be something more than that." And and I think that's what we're doing on the podcast here. That would be, for instance, one of the questions that we would say. That's a good question to ask. Is there something more? even to that word family, but certainly to the word relationships. Is there something more than I've been told? Is is green blue or is blue blue? You know, is yeah. family this or is it what the depth of my heart is crying out for? So, so we do need to have a conversation then, Jim, because <clears throat> at this point we have to talk about doctrine because there is a role that doctrinal thinking plays in any congregation, even those that are anti-doctrine, okay? Mm -hmm. So my my best guess right now is that in America, where we're at today, in particular, uh, because church in America has become politicized and Gnosticized, both right and left, we are first of all, looking at the category of doctrine all wrong. We, we need to reframe that category entirely in relation to church, but we also have to be able to say this. The problem today isn't like, should we meet at home, should we not meet at home? Should we be, meet at 10 a.m., should we meet every night of the week? When, bah, bah, bah. That's not the problem for the church today. The problem in the church today is that it doesn't preach the gospel. Mm. It's the gospel that creates the church. And if you, yes. if you have a message... If your message about the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit contains law, contains transactional elements, contains these things, then your category of church is going to follow. So the first thing we have to do is get Christians to begin to go, oh, we need to rethink this whole business of what we're preaching and mm. teaching. Because if we don't do that, then we're... Look, for example, so you know there were no church buildings in, until 250. And the earliest church building we have in Dura Europus is 250. Okay, before that, homes of wealthier citizens tended to be consecrated in the sense they had one room set aside that was like the, the place where the church met, and they did Eucharist. Okay, so you can trace that back. You can do your whole love feast thing in the early, you, blah, 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 blah. you can do all that. The reality is, and, and the reality is, that as long as you are not preaching the gospel, you cannot form relationships that then become the place, the assembly, where God reigns. 
that's really good. That that's really good. And and first of all, I, I want to take the side the the stance of that. What about most congregations who would listen to this would say, "Well, we preach the gospel. We we preach it every Sunday." So oh, can you clarify that? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, and you know I could if they're preaching any sort of Calvinist or Augustinian doctrine of election. That's not gospel. Penal substitution theory atonement, not gospel. Eternal conscious health doctrine, not gospel. Um, this, you know, anything that divides the Trinity, not gospel. Anything that's transactional in nature, not gospel. Anything that's supersessionistic or anti-Semitic, not gospel. And those would be my basic criteria. Or dualistic, not gospel. Gnostic, not gospel. You know? So it's it's basically a lot of it is anything that creates a us versus them mentality or I'm in, you're out kind or of God's on kind my of thinking. Side. Yeah. I mean the whole point the whole point of the narrative in Luke four, when Jesus yeah. busts open the Isaiah text, is to say, Jubilee has gone to the Romans, guys. God made friends with the Romans. You don't have to worry anymore. <laughs> And they did not want to hear that. No, they didn't. Who's the or what's what's the uh, Old Testament story? Uh, the the man that was going off to war and he met an angel and he said, "Whose side are you on? You're on our side or you're on their side?" And the angel said, "Neither." I don't, I'm on well, the I don't know that story. Yeah, he said, "I neither. I'm on the Lord's side." You know, yeah, my side. You know, it's the it's us praying for our favorite football team. You know, hey, wait a minute! Don't 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 touch that. (laughs) You're on sacred ground for Michael now. Praying all day Sunday, and the father decided to take a bye week. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure he likes cowboys. You know, no, I'm sure he doesn't like the cowboys. Well, he's, he's a, a Giants, Giants fan, so he's a... I mean, the Giants, Giants are mentioned in the Bible in, in Genesis 6, long before the Eagles are mentioned in Isaiah 40, and he certainly got no commanders mentioned. And Cowboys? I don't think so. No, no, because no, cows... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait cows a minute. and boys were there first. Dangerous territory when you talk about the commanders. <laughs> are you seriously a Washington fan? Well, uh, I don't know about the commanders. I mean, you know, but I did like the Redskins. <laughs> All right. Back to church. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We got three NFC East rivals. Each one of us is a different NFC East team. Right. I think this podcast is doomed. <laughs> See, and, and this is this is an illustration to everybody that if we can get along, <laughs> there is a Lord Jesus, Amen. So, on a on a local or a practical level, how do you see all those who are in Christ Jesus working? Right now, I don't. In America, I don't. What I see are exactly. religious people. Religious people go to church on Sunday morning, do their religious thing, and they probably do their best to live out their religious values. One thing I do know about Christians is this. 
They are better than their theology. They are nicer than their God. They are more generous than their God. And so Christians seem to have somehow picked up that element of the Father's benevolence in the gospel, and they're actually better than this God they claim to believe in. But for most of them, it's just, it's that's church for them. Churches, look, church for most people is nothing more than the place to have your 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 community, your social relations, okay? That's all it is. Right. So, right. So, so, like, for example, I, I live alone. I see my daughter once in a while. I see my granddaughter once in a while, but I don't see human beings. I live alone in my little apartment, right? I'm going to go through five months of winter here that way without really seeing anybody but my daughter and my granddaughter. Okay, I desire sociality more than anything. Okay, I accept the fact that I'm I've been put into a monastic situation, and that's how I'm framing this. It's my monastic time, but I want that, and that's what church provides. Church provides people that you believe care about you, people that you begin to care about, people whose stories you know, people who hear your story. Okay, it, that's what church is about. Until it becomes apparent that. There are groups in that church which who have different stories, and there's a kind of a hierarchy or a ranking of those stories. Mm. That's, That's good. the real problem right now with church is hierarchy. Now I want to I want to recommend a book. It's an old book. It's by a Catholic theologian. It's Hans Kung's book on the church. So I thought about this today, and I remembered at the. Uh, I probably won't be able to put my finger on the exact page now. Um, but but he observes that the word hierarchy is neither used in secular Greek nor anything until the sixth century. Okay, hierarchy, a holy beginning. Arche meaning beginning. NRK was the logos in the beginning. In the okay. Higher, uh, meaning holier, priest, temple, heroes, temple. So hierarchy doesn't really enter Christian vocabulary till the 6th century. But I think that that, that has been, um, uh, again, there are so many things you can trace back. You know, you, I do this in my books, uh, going back to the problem of the relation of the Testaments, with Justin Martyr, the early fathers. This is why I, I'm not a fan of those that go, I'm going to go to the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church has the ancient ritual. I'm going, you guys have no idea what they got is a ship that has so many barnacles on it. It's Byzantine. Hmm. It, it, it's not the early church. This is not how the early church did it, right? Plus, the Orthodox Church can't do ethics. They have no ability to do ethics, none at all. Um, and, and so for me, American Christianity is a dead, we, we are in a dead phase right now. Literally, we're dead. That's why when I preached uh, October, uh, 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 Reformation Day of 2017, and I was in Dallas Town, Pennsylvania, and I preached a sermon on Reformation Sunday, 500-year anniversary. said, around the world today, people are celebrating it. I'm here to deliver the funeral sermon for Protestantism. And that's what I did that day. I gave a funeral sermon. Because it's dead. We cannot make it happen. We cannot make church happen. This is where Jim and I, if we're lucky enough, we're going to get to see the second Jesus movement of our lifetime. Yeah. 
we were in the first as young men. And dude, I am so pumped. And I'm hoping this podcast is happening when it starts. I'm hoping <laughs> we can be a part of it like your dad was. You know what I mean? I do. And and if what you just said offends somebody, I'm going to double down. So be it. Because what we have in in the Western world, in the United States, that we call church needs to die. Yes. So that what can be what what needs to resurrect is Christ's body. Amen. And we talked about it uh, the last two weeks. We talked about the work of the cross. But I, I, I was looking there in Acts shortly after the day of Pentecost. 3,000 souls came to the Lord on one day, and, and more as was added to the church. And it said that they went from house to house, breaking bread, having fellowship. And there's that uh, statement in there, and they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Oh. And, and I was looking at that, and I, I, I had a, a kind of a picture in my mind of... The apostles sitting down and saying, okay, now we got a church of 3,000 people. Oh, no, it's 3,500. Oh, no, it's 4,000. We better sit down and write a doctrinal statement so that they can stay, continue steadfast in this. <laughs> and it's like, I don't, I'm sorry no. if you're taking the word doctrine and interpreting it that way, uh, because that's not what happened. And, I begin to look and, and I begin to see that I think so much of what we've made doctrines out of, so much of what we've made New Testament commandments and laws and bylaws and whatever, was nothing more than an apostolic father explaining or writing to the church or teaching the church how to manifest love. The, mm -hmm. the, the very thing that Jesus said, here's my commandment. I want to give you a commandment. Love each other the way I loved you. And, and, and I think that first century church, I think that's where they began. Uh, and, and I think in whatever gets resurrected and wherever resurrection life happens, I think that's not only where we begin, I think that's where we, where we have to learn how to live. We have to learn how to live in that place of what love is. Not humanism, not uh, feel good, oh, I like you, so I'll treat you better than I treat this one. Not uh, scapegoatism, not any of those things. But genuine, as the Lord loved us, love. Uh, and, and we do that with everybody. We do that with... Uh, Forgive the terminology, but we do it with saint and sinner. So, so let's let's talk about this because if if there is to be a Jesus movement and and historical cycles, I mean, I, I can give you the literature on this. Indicate we are in an explosive era coming up. In not we got about five, seven more years of like hell to go through, but then we're at the end of that cycle, and we have the next generation. First of all, doctrine is a terrible translation of the word didache there in the Acts text. 
It's, it's the, the Didache of the early church had to do exactly with what you're talking about, practical behavior patterns. And the Didache, which we can find in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Luke's Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6, we find it in the book, the Didache, we can find it in the early church in a number of documents, we can find it in Paul in Romans 12 and 13. This Didache is this committed life of nonviolence, this absolute life committed to nonviolence, committed to it, that's love. Love is nonviolence. And, and this is where, again, as long as the church has a violent God, it leaves room for violence within the Christian sphere or the worldly sphere. But if it has a God that's pacifistic, a God who renounces violence, a God who refuses to be like all the other gods and requires sacrifice and this and that and the other, if the Father is indeed this way, then Jim is so spot on, and it comes right back to this, business that we can sit and talk Christian language in the church from the pulpit and everything else, and we can talk about love and relationality, and we're only going to end up where the hippies ended up, becoming yuppies, because love worked for a while. Like, like I love you, man. I love you. I'll help you out, brother. You go right there. You're I got your back. You know, it was that whole camaraderie thing, and man, we were really good at it in the 70s and 80s, man. We, we were really good at that. But that's not love. You know, real love manifests itself in this choice to not retaliate and to forgive all, to, to forgive the world. Yeah. If Jesus forgave the world, that's love. And the church, and this has concrete, concrete re business for life and ethics. Yeah, really, and this is where every Christian's going. Oh, oh, oh! I'm cringing, but I'm gonna tell you right now: if if you're violent and your God is violent, you're worshiping an idol because Jesus was a pacifist and he imitated his father, who was a pacifist. And to walk in that level of forgiveness, that level of 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 love, is the fulfillment of picking up our cross and following mm -hmm. Him. Exactly. It's the fulfillment. It's the fulfillment of dying to self daily. Amen. Exactly. Yeah, because I was just thinking the same thing of how appropriate it was that we started with the cross to, to the church because the whole thing is Jesus came to bring forth a, a, a new humanity. Yes. Um, it's it's not it's not about a, a you know a new group a club or I'm a Christian now so I got to join something it's it's word to manifest the people that God intended to have on the earth. And uh, and so Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren, showing us the way to do that. And that's why we can't separate him from the path or, or the way we're supposed to live. His example, we follow that example because he's the path that we walk. And so, and then that's why it ends with his story on earth ends with the cross because right there is, is just like you guys brought up last week, that it's all starts with forgiveness, that it has to be, you know, it, it, when you hurt me, I can forgive you, and I forgive you, and I forgive you, and as Michael, you said 70 times, seven, you did it again, what? You know, I still forgive you, and and that's what projects us forward, and then just like you said, that the retaliation thing has to go, um, and, and, and even in the, in the conversation about church, that's even one of the things, too, is like we talked about how, you know, all three of us could say we've been hurt by church at some point in our lives, and I'm sure most of our listeners could say that. And that's also where that retaliation thing has to die, that, that I have to be able to forgive and let that go. So here's the most interesting part of this now. And I don't know if it's just the Roman Catholic in me or not. 
I forgive the church. I forgive Protestantism. I forgive Protestantism. Listen to me like I'm the Pope. I now go say 10 hail Jerry Falwells and 50 hail Ben Frank for parking grams and you'll be good. Okay, anyway, um, dear Billy who art in heaven. No, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, th this is this is important because we throw we're, we, the, 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 the whole modern project of deconstruction has thrown the baby out with the bathwater. The baby is what Jim said. An authentic group of people could be two, could be three, could be 50, could be 20, could be 200, doesn't matter. Numbers don't matter. Numbers don't matter. What matters is the quality of relationships. That's yes. what counts. And when those, there, when those two, three, 15, 20, whatever number, are gathered together in the name of Jesus, who has reconciled them through his blood, they conspired to kill him, and he forgave them all. When they're gathered together, they're willing to give their life for one another. And I think we're, we're going to see that we don't need to necessarily meet together physically anymore. We can actually have virtual community. And I think that's kind of where we need to start thinking toward. It, it, it is. And I, I wanted to pick up on what you said. It can be two, three... Our, our Lord said that, wherever two or more are gathered. Um, in, in my book, I, I address that. Uh, over, the, over my lifetime, I've had uh, many what I would consider to be prophetic or inspired dreams. I've actually had uh, what some people call open visions. And I don't remember which, but it's, it's not really important. Um, I was standing over a, a, a small table, and on that table was, um, from my perspective, uh, uh, the height that I was standing looking at it, I was looking at a picture. And it, was a, it was a beautiful picture. I think it was a landscape or something. It, it was beautiful. I was like kind of getting into it and looking into the intricacies of it and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, it's like I, I started lifting up, if you will levitating okay <laughs> and i'm levitating over this table with this picture on it and i start seeing that there's another table uh, you know another table and another table kind of all around this thing and but i also noticed that on the edges what i didn't see in the beginning was on the edges of the initial uh picture and then the subsequent ones also it was jagged edges like a uh, jigsaw puzzle, uh, you know, the, uh, and all of a sudden I started seeing these pieces coming together. And the higher I got lifted, the more I, w pictures I saw. Until ultimately I probably saw, I don't know, tens of thousands of pictures all interlocked. And the whole thing was one glorious mural. Wow. And I felt like I felt like the Lord was saying to me, that first picture is your life. It's complete. It's 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 good. It's not a bad picture. It's a it's a nice landscape. But if you look and see all around you, there are 
other lives that I want you connected with. And as that one connects to the ones it's called to connect to, and those are connected to who they're called to connect to, all these interlocking pieces come together and create a much larger, much more glorious picture. That's the church. And what I, what I saw is I am connected to every other member of the church through the four or five connections that I'm actually physically connected to. Wow. So I don't have to, you know, the re consider the ridiculousness of going into a building even with 50 people let alone a mega church with 30,000, you know, and thinking that somehow, uh, you know, uh, our, our, our friend Wayne Jacobson talks about one-anothering. You know, that somehow I'm supposed to one-another with all these people in this building. And, and I'm beginning to become much more comfortable with what you're saying, Michael, even if it's only two or three but those are God connections. Those are intimate relationships that are in Christ. And because they're connected to two or three others, who are connected to two or three others, who are, and ultimately you see the body of Christ working together, not only in the locale, but ultimately around the world. I think that's how it's supposed to be working. I, I, I'm going to be very interested in the future, Jim, to see how this concept of the network that Carol Wimmer talks about works out itself out in terms of like, we have three of us and maybe we have five or 10 listeners. Okay. So now there's what 15 or 20 of us, right? Cool. But each of the 15 or 20 of us are listening or participating in other networks. Yes. You know, um, that to me is where the fun is going to be, is going to really be. And then in these networks begin enriching each other Right. Exactly. No, it, it, it brings to life the whole thing that was mentioned earlier about God fitting the parts together as, as, as every joint supplies. Um, it, it really brings that to life of every every piece comes together and we all bring a piece of the puzzle together. And, uh, and and the beauty it brings. And, and here's something, too, I wanted to address, because when we talk about these pieces, it, it almost becomes like, well, what about the people who aren't lovely? What about the people who are difficult to be with? Something I've seen in my own experience is even they end up having somebody who feels drawn to them when we're walking in the spirit. I've, I've seen that. I've witnessed it. I've watched people who th there was like one brother who would irritate me like crazy. I was like, that guy is just, he's out there. That guy's a Looney Tune, you know? And then I watched his other brother actually build a relationship with that guy and say, I really feel like he's supposed to be in my life and I'm supposed to be connected with him. And I just sat there and marveled and just went, this is a God thing. Now, Lauren, the other guy, the third person in, the, in your story, is that somebody you were connected to? Uh, the, the person who connected with the, the yeah. yes, he, yeah, he was. Okay. See, that's a, I think that's how it works. And through him, you're connected to the one that's a little more difficult for your personality right. to get along with. But, but that's, an, that's the in Christ connections. We, you know, we are still human. 
we are called to love each other. We're called to love one another. We're called to forgive each other. But that's not the same thing as saying that I'm going to be best pals with every single person that there is. Every time I meet somebody else that, you know, and, and you might hear me kind of fumbling a little bit when I'm trying to <laughs> say that's been born again or saved or whatever. And in future podcasts, we'll get into more of that stuff. But um, everyone that names the name of Christ, that doesn't mean that I have to have the same level or quality of relationship with them as everybody else. It just isn't going to happen. Right. That's realistic. That's absolutely so. realistic, and it's and it's important. Yeah. Because we, we, what we've done in the church is we 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 produce this uh, corporate ethic. You gotta love everybody. And the thing is, Jesus doesn't say love the world. He said, it says for God to so love the world. Jesus said, you love your neighbor. Who's the neighbor? The person you encounter. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's it. That's Jacques Ellul. That's Jacques Ellul in a nutshell. Yep. And then also to clarify is loving your neighbor, because one of the things in our modern culture is love means I have good feelings about you. Oh, I feel gushy about you, you know, but love means I have goodwill for you. And so I might not feel wonderful, but if I have goodwill towards you and want the best for you, then I'm loving you, regardless of emotionally how attached I am to your personality. Yeah, lo love love has nothing to do with emotion. Agape in Greek, Paul defines very clearly. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is loyal. Love is defined there, and it's all these ways we relate to each other, especially when we are recognizing with full awareness Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're clueless. When people sin, they're clueless. When they hurt us, they're clueless. They think they know what they're doing. Pilate and Caiaphas thought they knew what they were doing. The disciples thought they knew what they were doing. None of them knew what they were doing. In fact, Paul says the principalities and powers didn't even know what was going on. <laughs> this thing was hidden. That's why it worked. I like what you're saying, Michael. Uh, yeah, I, I think we paused for a moment of reflection on what you were saying. Yeah, re really, because love wants the best for the other person. Amen. And the best may not be what I, through my own, you know, finite brain, thinks is best for them. The best is that they connect with the Lord and they receive from the Lord all that he has for them. So, if in their life journey they find promotion, then I rejoice with those that are rejoicing. If life happens, which the Lord said it does, it, it will. In this life, you will suffer certain things. If life happens, I want the best for them, so I'm going to go over there, I'm going to put my arm around them. It has nothing to do with emotionalism, it has nothing to do with, you know, I'm going to show this guy how much I love him. It has everything to do with my heart is for them genuinely. I, I, I You know, even if they transgressed against me, yeah. uh, 
love keeps no record of wrongs done keeps no record of it there's not an accounting there's okay finally we got to that what is it that 70 times 7 what is that 600 okay that was 700 now I don't have to forgive him anymore <laughs> you know? you've got really good math because it's actually 490 but if you're forgiving people up to 700 you're, you've got gospel math going on <laughs> okay, you know, I went to Eureka High I mean what can I say <laughs> Sorry, alumni. <laughs> gospel man. That, that's gospel man. <laughs> well, and it's Ooh. interesting because what we're talking about is where the New Testament, so many of the epistles and stuff start to make sense because the, the framework that we've been handed down of, of a very institutional mindset um, this thing of love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. It, it doesn't work in that in a in a programmed uh, you know environment. It works it relationally, and when you when you start functioning relationally, suddenly the bulk of the New Testament starts making sense because it's like oh, this thing about loving one another it, it's it doesn't function per se in a church service. It functions in my relationships with the people. Well, I, I have to tell you at this point, the last church experience I had, well, I haven't been to church in eight or nine years now, but the last one I had, you know, you came in and they would um, put you in a, a house church, okay? I don't know why. I, I really, to this day, I don't know why. Uh, at that time when, I, when we came to this church, I was probably 50 years old. They threw us into this house church of 70-plus-year-olds. And all these 70-plus-year-olds did when they got together was talk about their damn doctor's appointments. <laughs> now, I asked, I requested to be transferred to a more lively group. The problem was the lively group, the 30-year-olds, the pastor was in that group. Oh. He's going to let that happen, right? So for me... Churches that do this house church thing, the problem is once you start a group, a small group, there comes a point at which the group can't absorb anybody from the outside. They've formed an identity. Mm -hmm. Okay? And they no. really can't absorb anymore from the outside because their identity's firm. But we keep trying to do this. And, and, and to me, it's a total, this concept, of, unless we're, we have to come to a place. Here's what we need to do. We need to recognize that once a group hits 24, 24 is the, the number for critical mass. When you hit 24, you're going to grow, okay? So once a group hits 24, it needs to go, we need to hive off. We, we need to go back two groups of 12, grow. Boom, boom, we need to hive off. The reason that churches don't do it is because pastors can't control this all the leadership out there. And why? Because they don't have a common Didache. If they had an apostolic Didache, like it's talked about in Acts 2, Romans 12, 12 13, Luke 6, Matthew 5 through 7, etc., etc., if they had that Didache, I'll tell you, here's what I said to my class recently. I pointed out to them the early church was as divided on doctrine as we are today. Mm -hmm. But they had one thing, one thing that they were completely united on for almost 300 years and nobody deviated, and that was a commitment to nonviolence or pacifism. 
<clears throat> yeah, they were they were they were disunited and doctrinally. Oh my God, that's you got three hundred first three hundred years of church history is you might as well take a, some LSD, smoke ten joints, drink a bottle of rum, and go. Let's study history because it's a mess. <laughs> you know, it really is a bad, 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 bad mess. You know, remember I talked about that post enlightenment. Let's look at this thing historically, right? But the fact is, they they were all committed to Jesus, and they were all committed to that piece of the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Because why? Because their father in heaven was pacifistic. They were figuring it out, and then. Justin Martyr and the Greek theologians came in, and that screwed everything. Wow, and and I think to this day, we we still, you know, where do wars come from? Aren't they from those own fleshly desires that burn within us? And splitting over doctrinal positions is the same thing. It it really is creating wars. Amen. We're we're not peacemakers. We're not loving. Jesus talked about uh, you know the tax collectors and you know the Pharisees. You know they love those that love them. They love those that do good for them and and uh, you know enrich them in various ways. Uh, and he says. <laughs> I'm not talking about that level of love. I mean, the world can do that. Right. I'm talking about a level of love that looks at someone who wounds you, who transgresses against you, who speaks evil against you. Um, We don't even have that in most of the uh, uh, Christian circles. Uh, and, and, And we still can't get together. We still can't lay aside petty little differences to say, hey, you're my brother. I need to learn how to love you. I need to learn how to walk together with you in a nonviolent way. Yeah. Uh, I can't I can't practice nonviolence in the world if I haven't mastered it in my own house. And I can't practice nonviolence in the world if I'm not willing to let others violate me. Ooh. Oh, don't go there. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I know yeah. I'm right. You're right. 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 He's bloody well right. He's not bloody right to say yay. <laughs> uh, that, that's one of those where you're like, I, I want to agree with that, but I don't. <laughs> Because, but it's very true, and and that's one of the things is that love actually is setting yourself up to get hurt, and that's why we have to be forgiving. Because I mean, I've even just seen in my classroom, I get hurt all the time. I hear students say things that just like, "Ouch," you know, and yeah. and you just have to live in that place of forgiveness. Yeah, and and I've seen also though, um, talking about um, us the doctrine and the splits and the the divisions and the violence. Um, I think one of the core problems is and why it could be good that the Lord is letting this whole thing, that the modern way of doing church and everything just die is that it's hard to love one another when I'm in competition with you, 
when I'm building my organization and I want to make my organization bigger and better and stronger and you want your organization bigger and better and stronger and, you know, it's like, how am I going to lay down my life for you? Because I'm, I want the goods that you have or I'm, I'm trying to be the top dog in the neighborhood. And so it's going to, that's just going to put us in, you know, it's nothing more than like the fast food chains, you know, we're just, we're just competing against each other. You remind me of clergy gatherings when I was a pastor in the denomination and the de- the pastors would get together at this thing called Midwinter every year. And, uh, you know, it was always, how big is your church? How much do you make? How many people have you baptized or grown by this year? Um, it was like, why don't we just unzip our pants, whip on our private parts, and really see who's the top dog now? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really, honestly, it was terrible. Because for those of us, you know, we, we that that weren't normal, like we didn't leave seminary with short hair and towed the the church line, and you know, the people thought, you know, okay, these are pious people, whatever. No, those of us that wanted to think a little bit, we got these little shitty, out of the way, teeny churches that were full of trouble, and they kept losing pastor after pastor after pastor. We just became the next casualty, mm-hmm. you know. And, and then you go to these meetings and you've got these guys, established church, 150 years, everything's beautiful. They're making double what you're making. They've got a big package. You can't pay your f- bills at home. I was having to wait tables when I was a pastor, you know, just to make ends meet. It was like, the whole thing's a joke. The whole thing's a joke. This whole celebrity Christian culture thing is just sick. And it's killing us. And that's why... Little groups, people that were willing to say, I named Jesus, and I named his love, and I am living my life in the light of his good news message. We are the future. We are the future. Well, and we have to get past the whole thing of counting numbers. You know, of, of numbering the numbering the people, oh, like, like like we talked about the two or three. You know, um, we we have to realize that things that seem insignificant sometimes are the most significant things that could ever happen. Yeah, well, when you're when you're all all you're thinking about is numbers, then you're caught up in mimetic contagion. That's all. You're just looking. Yeah. To, you're looking to. It's a form of self justification. And I did this. I was God. I was a pastor. I'd come to church on Sunday morning. I'd look out at the pews. I'd do kind of a mental count, you know. I'd look at who was there, who wasn't there, mm-hmm. you know. Okay. I did that every Sunday. It was like, you know, and and it was in my head. It was a demon in my head. But I did yeah. it. That's what pastors do. And it kills you. It absolutely kills you. Yeah. I, I did that as a youth pastor. Twelve oh. kids showed up. Oh, great youth meeting. We only yeah. had five. Uh, waste of my time. Should I even bother teaching? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, right? And what, what do I spend 20 hours preparing for, right? Yeah. Man, but it, like you said, it kills you. I'm glad to be free from that because, uh, you know, and I, and I could cite real world examples where just small gatherings and, and talking to a couple people and stuff. And years later, I find out lives have been changed. And, yeah. and But here's the thing that's interesting that I've seen is different. It used to be in my day, it, it, back in, when I was all doing the, the traditional church thing and stuff, it, it was about the emotional high. You know, a big gathering, wow, we feel great, everything's great and stuff. Then when I left that scene, it was almost like I had to go through a detox because I would get together with a small group of guys, friends of mine, 
And it would seem, when we were talking, there was no emotionalism. There was no, you know, there, there wasn't the zings and the zaps and the highs and everything. And then it was weird because three days later, I would be going through a situation. I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what my friend Bob was just talking about a couple days ago. Yes. And it would totally apply to my situation. But it was void of the emotionalism and the highs and everything. But it was like transferring from junk food to eating apples and, and grapes and real food. Okay, it, I don't it like was... that metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We, we were just out the eat the other day, and they were talking about like brats and beer, and we're like, Michael Harden would like this place. Yeah. There's not a vegetable to be found anywhere. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, no, but you're right. So, so listen, we, but here, we don't want to end on, on a false note now. We don't want our viewers or, re, or auditors to think we're ending on a false note because there's a saying in Matthew's Gospel, now whether it's to the historical Jesus or not, I don't think so, okay? But it doesn't matter to me. It's in the gospel account. I have a hermeneutic that allows me to do this kind of thinking. Where the writer says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here's the deal. What is the church doing? Busting down the damn gates of hell. What's hell? Hell is darkness. Hell is guilt. Hell is shame. Hell is hate. The church, what's the church's do? What's the church doing? Whatever she's doing, the gates of hell ain't going to stand up against her. Can't stand against it. Yeah, no. That's good. Yeah. And Jesus continues by the Spirit to do this thing called church in spite of Christianity. Yes. And Christendom. Very good. But when the creed says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic Church. I have to say, Amen. Thank you, God. Amen. And I, I think on that note, that, that's a good a good note to wrap it up on. Because, man, this, this one, again, just really flew. But uh, thanks again, guys, for, for being here. And uh, uh, this is Lauren Rosser signing off with my friends uh, Jim Durkin and Michael Harden. And uh, we'll see you all again next week. Next week. Yep.